what I longed for. You have given life to me. You have given life to me. Amen. Let's take our Bible, turn over to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. It's tough on Wednesday nights. Things uh, move slowly at the beginning, and uh, we take time to pray and all of that, and doesn't leave a whole lot of time. And uh, I've got like 12 pages for tonight's message, and good luck, right? Actually, it's only seven, but I usually don't go over five if I have 45 minutes. I don't usually go over four if I have about 35, and today we have 30 and I have seven. So let's see what happens, all right? Ephesians chapter 5, we see that the world seems to, has seemed to find its way into the Christian arena so quickly, doesn't it? Seems like it has at least, it's found its way, lying, cheating, gossiping, immorality, stealing, etc., etc. It just seems to be pretty normal in the world. Sadly enough, it's becoming much more normal in the church. So in Ephesians 5, we read in verse 1, it says, But be therefore followers of God as dear children... And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Again, throughout the course of this uh, passage, right at the very beginning actually, he emphasizes their relationship and he said that they're the children of God and because they're the children of God, he reminds them that it, it, that, that came at a great price, that Christ himself literally laid his life down and paid for, their, uh, paid for their sin and as a result of that, they're to forsake sin. You and I as believers today are to live uniquely different than the world. There are some things that should never be once named among us. Why is that the case? Well, because he offered himself as our sacrifice and we're his children. But we said that, boy, I'll tell you, the erosion we're seeing of integrity and character in the church is, well, it's, uh, it's overwhelming, really. There are so many voices proclaiming another truth today. And in 
as a result of that, we said integrity needs to be a mission. It needs to be something we really strive for. It's a mission we need to focus on. We need to be proactive in our pursuit. We need to remain steadfast in our resolve. We have to maintain our integrity at all costs. And so the teaching of Scripture was, is clear. We said principle is important, ethics are urgent, and integrity is essential. And so we began to list some practices that would help develop character and integrity that would ultimately provide the foundation needed to live our lives by principle. We said, number one, put Jesus first. Number two, give attention to the Bible. Number three, follow leaders who follow the Lord. Number four, stop trying to impress everybody. And tonight, we want to begin by saying, adopt biblical standards as normal behavior. Take your Bible, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Right there, I mean, I could just feel a little kink, as Brother Tony Hudson would say. We're not even going to talk about what you thought we were going to talk about, but if you thought we were going to talk about that and there was a kink, friend, you need to get it right. I just throw that out there. We need to stop playing church. And you start living it. Read 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Powerful passage right here. Powerful. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sword are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Father, bless us now in these next few minutes. May our hearts be encouraged as we talk about the need to live by principle. And in order to do that, we need to lay a foundation of integrity and character. Father, be with us tonight. May we just, uh, Father, recognize the need to adopt biblical standards as normal behavior in our lives. We'll thank you. We'll praise you for what you will do in Christ's name. Amen. Now here we have in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul speaking, of course, to his protege or his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, but thou hast known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. 
In our passage then, what we see here is we're being introduced to Paul's testimony. His testimony is being expressed here. He's pointing out that Timothy knew his manner of life, his purpose. He he knew his faith, his long-suffering, his charity, his patience, as well as his teachings. The young man was aware of Paul's practice and that he practiced what he preached. Now, in this particular passage, chapter 3, verse 10, right off the bat, we notice the pattern of Paul's life. Timothy knew the pattern or the manner of Paul's life firsthand. This phrase in the passage, it says the manner of life. Again, but thou hast known my doctrine, manner of life. It could be easily rendered as my lifestyle. You know my lifestyle. You've seen it lived out before your very eyes. Paul's manner of life was his teaching. What he preached was infused in what he practiced. There was no distinction or separation in what Paul knew to be truth and how Paul lived out the truth. We see not only the pattern of Paul's life, but in that same verse we note the purpose of Paul's life. And again, Timothy again knew Paul's purpose, and he understood that Paul's purpose marched in step with God's purpose. From the very moment Paul met Jesus Christ on the road, that Damascus road that day, he had a single-minded determination to do the will of God. We see no wavering in that will. There's no mental reservation. There's no conflict of desire here. Paul was totally committed to accomplishing the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And like Paul, Timothy needed to have a purpose. Every Christian needs a purpose. Timothy had to make up his mind, even as Daniel did, not to waver from his obvious duties. And you and I need to have a purpose. And that purpose is to fulfill God's purpose and plan for our lives and never waver from that purpose. We note the pattern, the purpose of Paul's life, but also the priorities of Paul's life in chapter 3, verse 10. We see here, it's rather threefold, if you will. First, we see, he says, faith. Timothy, you know my faith. And that faith was God's word. Paul fully trusted in the Lord. From the very moment again that he met Christ, you can almost picture Paul rummaging or pouring over the pages of the Old Testament as his faith is being confirmed. I mean, think about it. He's noting the Christ. The Christ that was promised in prophecy, that was portrayed in type and shadow in the Old Testament. He, he was the Christ of Calvary. And remember, they didn't have the New Testament as we have the New Testament. They had only the Old Testament. And here is Paul, trained in the, 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 the Word of God, and he's, he's noting things from even as a child, and he's going back into the Scriptures, and he's noting Christ, and he's recognizing the fact that Jesus, who came to earth, was indeed the Christ that was promised in the Old Testament. He had been conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He had been reared in Nazareth. He made himself known by the many works that he did while he lived on this earth. 
He had been crucified and he rose again the third day and he was seated in the heavenlies. He was the son of God as well as the son of man. He was prophet, priest, and king, and he was altogether lovely. He was the seed of the woman. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the seed of David. He was eternal, uncreated. He was self-existent. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And he is Jesus Christ of the New Testament. And Paul the Apostle has dug into the Word of God and he's come to these conclusions and he's not wavering. His faith, as far as we can tell, never faltered from the very moment he put it in Christ. And Paul's personal priority, Godward, was to place Christ on the throne of his life as Lord and to place his unquestioned trust in him The apostle's faith must have truly left a major mark on Timothy, his son in the faith. We see that second priority. He goes on to talk of this aspect of long-suffering. Again, we note in the passage, he says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, That word translated long-suffering means means forbearance. It means uh, endurance. It's actually a a Greek word that's comprised of two separate words. Actually, it's one word that has two separate words in it, I should say. And those those words are are pretty encouraging. They're, They're pretty descriptive. First of all, there's a word called makros, which means long. And then the rest of it's thumos, which means temper. So he's long-tempered. Okay, that means he's not short-tempered then, right? And uh, why? Because he exercises long-suffering. You get it? It's pretty clear here. He basically learned patience. Matter of fact, he says that he learned in whatsoever state he was to be content. This was a very patient man. Paul could put up with things. Paul put up with some stuff. In Corinth, he was opposed by a a very radical and fierce group. They sought to discredit him. They tried to undermine true doctrine with their heresies. The enemies of Paul were... I mean, they were mean-spirited. They were scornful. They were abusive toward him. And yet, Paul continued to be long-suffering. I mean, somebody looks at us cross-eyed, and the first thing we want to do is jump all over them. The Apostle Paul is being attacked mercilessly, and yet he continues to be long-suffering. He wrote again and again to the Corinthians. He visited them. He sent Timothy. He sent Titus. I mean, he prayed for them. He pleaded with them. He could have taken out his enemies. There's no doubt about that. If he simply just wanted to draw on his apostolic powers, there is no doubt that Paul could have taken them out at any given time, and yet he was long-suffering. We see the third priority of the Apostle Paul here as well. He goes on to say purpose. He says faith long-suffering, and then he comes up with a word that we've heard many times, charity. Now again, we, we recognize the fact that this faith was Godward. 
This long-suffering was self-worth. But now this charity is man-word. It's pointing out to others. The word charity refers to God's kind of love, if you will. I don't want to get into all of the detail, but it's God's kind of love, which now occupied the heart of the Apostle Paul as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. You need only read chapter 13 of the book of 1 Corinthians to recognize the fact and realize that charity wasn't just a sermon topic for the Apostle Paul. It was real, and it was a very constant theme in his own heart and in his own life. His love for the lost moved him day and night with tears, he says. It drove him over land and sea to seek out those across the globe. His love for the Lord's people abounded. Without doubt, his work amongst the people of God was stellar. He longed that all might come into the fullness of the blessing of Jesus Christ. And when it all shakes out, we see that his greatest love was for the man Jesus Christ, who of course rescued him from the kingdom of darkness and placed him in the kingdom of light, who gave him the joy of the Lord like none other, who gave him hope and purpose and help like none other. Oh yes, Timothy was familiar with the testimony of Paul's life. Why? Because he had traveled with him. He had shared his hardships. He had even enjoyed the many blessings that he experienced along the way. And then at the latter part of verse 10, as it goes on to say, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. We see the patience of Paul's life. Timothy certainly had observed Paul's patience. That word means abiding under. Patience develops slowly. It it grows best in the midst of conflict and in the midst of trial. Nobody really wants to pray for patience, right? Nobody really wants to have to gain patience because we know it comes at a great price. But the reality is, is that until we as believers can learn to be patient as the Apostle Paul did, we will never be truly satisfied. And our ministries will be severely limited. When Paul wrote about patience in 2 Timothy, he was enduring one of the most severe trials of his entire life. His world had been reduced to a mere prison cell, if you will. He'd been in a lot of tight fixes in his life. But he knew at this point his days were numbered. He didn't have much longer. Still, he accepted his lot in life. And he took it patiently. And he recognized that God was still on the throne. He took life one day at a time as the Holy Spirit ministered patience to his soul. Then he goes on in verse 11 to say, Persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. He begins to share his troubles. And he says in verse 12 then, But then again, All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I'm not the only one. And in verse 13 he says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then he encourages and exhorts 
this young man in the faith, and he says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. What we learn for sure is that Paul, speaking to Timothy, makes it clear that some things were very, very normal for him. A biblical lifestyle was par for the course in the Apostle Paul's life, as it should be in your life and in mine. So what do we come to then today? And it's not the end, it's only the beginning of the sermon. Let your patterns of behavior be Bible-based. Or if you will, adopt biblical standards as normal behavior. Again, we said that this practice will help develop character and integrity that will provide the foundation we need to live a life of principle. We have to learn to live by principle. So what do we need to do then? Adopt these biblical standards as normal behavior. First, be governed by biblical truth and practice, not convenience. Be governed by biblical, Bible truth and practice, not convenience. As we move to a society and culture that's comfort-based, and a society that operates primarily out of convenience, it is rarely easy to do the right thing. If you're going to be governed by Bible truth, then you're going to have to do the hard thing. It's not going to be easy. If you're looking for the easy way out, it is not the Christian life. And someone says, it's the best life. It is. I say it all the time. But let me tell you something. If you think that living the Christian life in a wicked, sinful world in which we live today is going to be easy, friend, you are dead wrong. It's amazing to me how we think we suffer when somebody slams a door in our face, door knocking, or says something derogatory to us as a result of our witness. Man, we are broken. We take it so personal. We, we just wonder whether or not we should continue or not. People just don't want to hear it anymore. And I mean, it's just, it's almost detrimental to my health. And I'd hate to see my kids have to watch me get made look like a fool. Well, maybe your kids need to see you be persecuted a little bit so they know what's coming down the road. And when you handle it the Bible way, they'll go, oh, so that's how you deal with it. That's a novel idea. It's good for us to be humbled sometimes. The Apostle Paul was humbled over and over and over again. And those that lived in that day, they knew what persecution really was. And you know, if we continue in the vein that we are going in America, we will also know what true persecution is. If you're going to be governed by the Bible and biblical truth, if you're going to live your life according to the Word of God and you're not going to compromise it by conven being convenient, my friend, I tell you, you're going to have to do things the hard way sometimes. You're going to have to do the hard thing because it's going to be the hard thing. One of the greatest paradoxes in American life is that while on average existence has gotten more comfortable over time, do you know that happiness has fallen? It's an amazing thing. According to the United States Census Bureau, average household incomes in the United States, adjusted for inflation, mind you, was higher in 2019 than has ever been recorded for every income statistic. And although income inequality has risen, 
This has not been mirrored by inequality in the consumption of goods and services. For example, in 2008 to 2019, households in the lowest income statistically increased spending on eating out by an average of almost 22% after correcting for inflation. Can you imagine that? The lowest incomes in our country, the lowest inco household incomes in our nation between 2008 and 2019 we're eating out, on average, 22% more times. One-fifth more times than they did back in 2008 versus 2019. The top statistical increase spending on eating out, an average of just, uh, let's see, what, blah, 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 let me get to this, some other things here. Meanwhile, domestic government services have increased significantly. For example, for instance, federal spending on education, training, employment, and social services increased from 2000 to 2019 by almost 30%. Almost 30%. And yet we are miserable today. More miserable than ever. New American homes in 2016 were 1,000 square feet larger than in 1973, and living space per person on average has nearly doubled. The number of Americans who use the Internet increased from 52 to 90 percent from 2000 to 2019. The percentage who use social media grew from 5 to 72 percent from 2005 to 2019. But amid all of those advances in quality of life, Across the income scale, mind you. Average happiness is decreasing in the United States. The General Social Survey, which has been measuring social trends among Americans every one to two years since 1972, shows a long-term gradual decline in happiness and a rise in unhappiness from 1988 to the present. People are more unhappy today than they have ever been. We have all these modern conveniences, all these tools to connect us to one another, all of these things that are supposed to make us happy and feel good about ourselves and really make life worth living. But all these conveniences are only bringing misery in the end because we have neglected God. We have turned down the Word of God. We've decided we don't need Him. We don't need His Word. We're in trouble. Convenience is not the answer to a Christian's problems. Being governed by biblical truth and practice is, though. So be governed by Bible truth and practice, not convenience. Be governed by Bible truth and practice, not ambition. How many have abandoned their morals or their ethics in order to advance in position, power, or prosperity? The Apostle Paul, he demonstrates this kind of godly ambition that every believer should possess. He, he exhibits it. Look, look what he does in Philippians chapter 3. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He's going to exhibit or demonstrate the kind of godly ambition that every believer ought to have. Philippians 3, 12. When I was a kid growing up and we'd, we'd uh, go play sports, say baseball or football or whatever it was, I can still hear the coach saying, how serious are you about the game? How serious are you about this, this team? 
And I want to know how serious are you about your Christian life? How serious are you about the Word of God? I mean, let's think about it. You know, the world demands a level of commitment and determination. And when it comes to Christ and the Word of God many times, we feel that it is basically a matter of convenience. If I, as I said the other night, want to, that's different. If I don't, well, that's, that's, that's my prerogative. We need to be governed by Bible truth and practice. You know what? You'll never truly be satisfied and fulfilled, nor will you be happy the way God intended as long as you continue or I continue to operate out of convenience or if I seek after simply worldly ambition. It's not going to happen. Notice what it says. Look at the Apostle Paul demonstrating this godly ambition. Philippians 3.12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is that he apprehended me with a purpose, and I am now seeking to apprehend that for which he apprehended me. You say, that's a mouthful. I know, I can't believe I just said it right. <laughs> Hope you got that taped. Man, I mean to tell you, we, that God didn't just save us to sit on a church pew. God saved us with purpose. And he said, I saved you with that purpose. Now make that purpose your purpose for living. That's what he's saying. You young people think that maybe just going out and getting a college education and getting a good job, that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. Whoever told you that? Was it God? I don't think God told you that. There's a lot more to life than just getting an education and a good job, friend. You can have the education, you can have the job, but if you don't have Christ, let me tell you something, you miss life all over. It's all messed up. nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves if they're in their proper place. But too many times they become our priority for living. Christ didn't save you to get an education and make a good living. Preacher, we appreciate you encouraging our young people and telling them exactly what we tell them every week. Make God your priority, young man. Make God your priority, young lady. And I pray and hope that that's what parents are doing here. Because if you're teaching your children to pursue anything but Christ first and foremost, you're making a serious mistake. An eternal mistake. The temptation to conform to the world's definition of success and make that the pursuit of our life, to make that our, our life's ambition is astronomical today. There's nothing wrong with success in life. Don't misunderstand me. Money, power, fame, and notoriety. Hey, listen, they can all become tools that the master can use to impact others for him. I understand all that, and I think it's a wonderful thing. But when we, but when, when, when we make obtaining those worldly ambitions the primary, uh, primary motivation in our lives, then we have missed the true biblical directive. We've missed, it. We've missed it. And so Paul makes it clear what his greatest driving force was. In chapter 3 again, verse 10, he says that I may know 
him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. There you have it. Pretty simple, isn't it? That I may know him. Let's raise our young people to understand that the greatest ambition they should ever have is to know him. There is nothing that should take precedent over knowing him. Nothing. No one should take precedence over knowing him. You say, that's pretty, man, I don't know, that's, that's pretty narrow-minded. Yeah, I know it is. It's biblically minded. And that's what we're talking about. Be governed by Bible truth and practice, not ambition. Finally, number three, you're doing pretty good. Be governed by Bible truth and practice, not peer pressure. Be governed by Bible truth and practice, not peer pressure. Some years ago, psychologist Ruth W. Verenda and her associates, they carried out an interesting experiment with teenagers. The experiment was designed to show how a person handled group pressure. The plan was simple. They brought groups of 10 adolescents into a room for a test. Subsequently, each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the longest line on three separate charts. Raise your hand when the teacher points to the longest line on these three separate charts. What one person in the group did not know was that nine of the others in the room had been instructed ahead of time to vote for the second longest line. Regardless of the instructions they heard, once they were all together in the group, the nine were not to vote for the longest line, but rather vote for the next to the longest line. The experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line. The subject would typically glance around. Kind of confused even, right? What's going on? And then slip their hand up with the group. The instructions were repeated, and the next card was raised. Time after time after time, the self-conscious subject would sit there saying that the short line is longer than the long line, simply because they lacked the courage to challenge the group. Now get this. This remarkable conformity occurred in about 75% of the cases and was true of small children as well as high school students. Isn't that amazing? So how many folks in our world today are simply following the crowd? I can't help but think about how unprovable evolution is, how unprovable it is, but how many have embraced it as fact. I can just see some people in, in school originally looking around going, that don't make sense. Eh, I don't want to be an outcast. I believe. Till they're fully indoctrinated and then they truly do believe the lie. Or how about the blind acceptance of the LGBTQ plus doctrine and the lifestyle? Or how about that radical push concerning transgender philosophy and indoctrination? 
Just put our hands up. You know what I'm saying? Just going to believe it, right? Look at all. There's so many others starting to. I guess maybe I'm the, I'm the weird one. I don't know. I mean, how can such insanity be accepted so quickly by so many? I think it's simple. Because there's a departure from biblical truth and practice and instead a steady diet of peer pressure. They see and hear about so many teachers, professors, and people they respect as smart who take a position one direction or another and so they simply follow the crowd. They just raise their hands in agreement because that's what everybody else seems to be doing, right? I mean, obviously everybody's uh, behind all this stuff. I mean, sure, there's guys swimming in women's sports. Of course, there are guys wrestling against women. I mean, this stuff's insanity, folks. And yet they're somehow convincing us that everybody agrees, and we're all starting to put our hands up. And sadly enough, in the Church of Christ, I promise you, maybe not in fundamental Baptist churches yet, but in churches across America, there are pastors and there are leaders and there are people that are supporting these Devilish doctrines. Because we're not governed by Bible truth and practice anymore, but by peer pressure. See, the Word of God ought to be the basis of our faith and practice. We need to be weighing what we hear and what we're taught on the scales of the Bible to determine whether or not it's valid or, or it has any validity at all. More than not, we're accepting what we're being told and, and, and we're, we're receiving it as truth today. That's extremely dangerous as a believer, by the way. Once again, the need is, as we mentioned just the other night, it's not just to read the Bible, but to study the Scriptures. How obvious is this in light of this reality? We've been conditioned to accept living together outside of holy wedlock as normal. We've been conditioned to accept children disobeying mom and dad as tolerable. We've been conditioned to accept divorce between two people as not that unusual. We've been conditioned to accept laziness as being cultural. Or we've been conditioned to accept violence as a response to perceived injustice as inevitable. Uh, we've been conditioned to accept pornography and immorality as being human. We've been conditioned to accept immodesty as a freedom and right to enjoy. We've been conditioned to accept bankruptcy as a necessary evil. Wish you wouldn't have threw that one in, preacher. Yeah, I know. But we're talking about adopting biblical standards as normal behavior. The Apostle Paul outlined his testimony, and he made it perfectly clear. Timothy had watched this man live his life, not just preach a life, but live the life. And the fact is today is that if we are going to successfully navigate in the Christian life, in the world in which we live, we must live by principle. And as a result, we're going to have to lay a strong foundation of integrity and character. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding, the Bible says. 
While writing to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul exhorts them plainly. He says this in closing. Philippians 1.27. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. You need to understand that when he uses the word conversation, he's not just talking about the way you speak. He's talking about the way you live. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else, I be, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's amazing to me, as I grow older and I, I used to hear older preachers say things all the time. Well, they'd say, well, it's time for some of the young men to step up. And I'd hear older people in the church, it's time for some of the older, younger ones to step up. Well, there's two problems. One, the younger ones aren't stepping up. And number two, who ever gave us a pass? From fulfilling the passage here in Philippians 1.27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. How is it that we ever thought we had a pass on separated living or we had a pass on, on godly service? We have a pass on living the Christian life to the day we die. We don't have a pass. Who in the world that knows Christ and loves the Lord would want a pass? I watched certain older ladies in our church drag into church in so much pain they can't hardly sit. And they come to church and they simply bask in the service. Just, just soaking up the Spirit of God and soaking up the music and the message. Just wanting just to drink it all in. It's the highlight of their week. Just stay home, old person. Lick your wounds from the past because living the Christian life was so tough. Really? Do you realize what you were spared by living Christ-like lifestyle? Be miserable to the day you die then. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go out like that. I want to go out strong. Oh, I might not be able to do what I used to do at some point in my life. I may not be able to give it all the time I used to and all the energy I had, but I don't have that energy maybe, and I don't have all that ability that I used to have possibly. I may not hear like I used to hear or see like I used to see or, or be able to do what I used to do, but I can do something. Let's live by principle, not convenience. Man, let's just start living our lives for Jesus Christ and stick with it and not give it up. Adopt biblical standards as normal behavior. Make those truths and those promises and those laws and statutes what you base your life on. Keep serving Jesus. Don't quit now. Don't quit. Don't give up now. Stay at it. Quit asking everybody else to step up. Just do what God's called you to do. And then God will send people to step up as we step up. Let's be the examples we ought to be to that next generation.
instead of expecting them to do what we used to do. Let's show them how to get it done. Maybe some of them will come along, and I think we got a good crew that are. Let's just stay at it. Father, we need you. And Lord, we're not perfect. We're just human beings. We're trying to do our best in a world, the world in which we live. And Lord, sometimes it just overwhelms us. But Lord, we have your Holy Spirit living in us, and we have the Word of God that is true. And help us, Lord, just to truly live our lives in a biblical state. Lord, help us to be very careful and cautious just to adopt biblical standards as normal behavior, just like the Apostle Paul did, Lord. Help us to do the same. From the moment we're saved till the day we die, may we consistently and continually pattern our behavior based on the Word of God. May we not quit. May we not give up. May we not slow down by choice. And if we have to slow down, maybe because you've put us in a place where we must. Father, help us, Lord. I know there are some folks in this room that wish they could be doing everything they used to do, but they just can't anymore. Lord, that's not what we're talking about today. But Lord, as believers, help us, Father, just to do our very best to live by principle and to honor you by putting your word where it belongs in our life. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.